Anybody ever watch um, Pawn Stars? I want to make sure I said what I said clearly. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, people bring stuff into this pawn shop, and they hope that they're going to make a bunch of money from some relic that they found in their grandpa's basement. They think it's from the Civil War or something like that. Or um, From the History Channel's description of the show, we get this. Pawn Stars takes you inside the colorful world of the pawn business. At the Gold and Silver Pawn Shop on the outskirts of Las Vegas, three generations of the Harrison family, Grandfather Richard, Son Rick, and Grandson Corey, jointly run the family business, and there's clashing and camaraderie every step of the way. End of their description. So the Harrisons then try to determine if things are genuine or fake. And if they're genuine, how much they're worth. And if they can buy it at a low price and sell it at a high price. By the way, that's good sound financial advice. Buy low, sell high. That's free. That's, that's not in my notes. I just thought I'd throw that out there. They have to make sure, though, that what they see is the real deal. Not some replica or ripoff. And they have a tendency to consult with experts It seems like Rick's always got a friend that just happens to be an expert in pre-Civil War muskets or something like that, you know. Yeah, it could be handy, right, right. So he'll give them a call, they'll come over, they'll look at it, and they'll say, the markings here, blah, 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 and they give very specific reasons why it's real or not real. And so then Rick comes back and says, this is a fake, I'll give you 20 bucks for it. And the people say, ah, I'm going to take it somewhere else. And he's like, you're welcome to do that because he's got expert advice and he can tell the real from the fake. So uh, some people have things that are worth much more than they imagined. And some do have worthless junk. Uh, In today's passage, what we're going to look at has nothing to do with Pawn Stars. but, um, But we do have an expert. We do have an expert on genuine and false faith, and his name is Jesus, right? Throw that out there. Um, And really, today's passage, this was really kind of eye-opening for me. This really took a turn that I wasn't expecting. I'm not saying there's a big left hook at the end or anything. But uh, we're going to be reading today Matthew 14, 34 through Matthew 15, 20. Now, the message will just cover through 15, 9. And the next time we meet, we'll cover 10 through 20. Uh, But if you would, please stand with us as we read this passage. Matthew 14, 34 through 15, 20. And we do believe with everything in us that these are the very words of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gesenaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick. And implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. (laughs) Ha ha, right? He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, 
Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Let's pray. Jesus, there's no one like you. We thank you, God, that you have a wonderful, perfect, beautiful plan for your glory and for the good of your people. And we thank you that you have given your spirit to teach us and instruct us and convict us through your word. And we submit to him now. We submit to your Holy Spirit that we might learn, grow, be changed, and be more like Jesus as a result of our time in the word together today. Help us, we ask, and we expect in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I know there are some folks here who are not a regular part of our fellowship. We do, of course, welcome you. I want to catch you up. We've been in the Gospel of Matthew for a while now, uh, working our way through it um, verse by verse, line by line, word by word sometimes. Um, And we're right smack dab in the middle of the Gospel. And we have said many times and want to reiterate the purpose of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew wrote his Gospel to prove one thing, and that's that Jesus Christ is the King. Not just of Israel but the promised king that would sit on David's throne for eternity and rule over all things, the Messiah of God, the promised one who was to come, who will reign and rule forever. Now, Matthew doesn't say that explicitly in his gospel, uh, and that's a lot of words, but we need to understand that the purpose of the gospel of Matthew is to present Jesus Christ as king. Now, we've seen a lot of things. We've seen that he was prophesied, that he was promised, that he came and that he uh, went into obscurity for a while, and then he came and was baptized, and his public ministry began. And all this stuff was going on. He brought 12 guys to himself that he called his disciples. In chapters 5, 6, and 7, he laid out the manifesto of his kingdom, which we call the Sermon on the Mount. And since then, we've seen a lot of things happen. He's healed a lot of people. He's taught a lot. He's gone into seclusion. He's been very public. The Pharisees have hated him. They've they've basically condemned him and said he worked in the power of the devil. He condemned them and said that they were going to spend eternity in hell because they could never be forgiven because of their unbelief. And what we found here after we went into chapters 11 and 12 was a mass rejection of the nation of Israel, especially the religious establishment of Israel, a mass rejection of Jesus. They rejected their Messiah. They did not recognize him as their Messiah, and they're upset, especially the scribes and the Pharisees, that he is basically blasting their religious traditions, and they hate him. 
And he just rebukes them openly and calls them all kinds of funny names. And, and, and they just continue to hate him and they get angrier and angrier. Jesus is in a period of withdrawal. He, his ministry has kind of peaked as far as public approval. And now he's starting to be rejected more and more and contended with more and more. And what we find today is just another sign of that rejection, another sign of that opposition. Of the people of Israel rejecting their king. But not everybody. So we're going to start back here in 1434. Um, we'll start there. When, when, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gesenaret. Now, the disciples and Jesus had taken a trip across the top of the Sea of Galilee over to a desolate place, Bethsaida, where they were going to withdraw and be alone, but there was a giant crowd there. Jesus ministered to them. That's where we have the recorded miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, which was more like 25,000 probably. Uh, Jesus ministered to them. After he fed them, he, he heard that they were going to try to take him by force and make him king, so he sent the disciples back across the lake so that they didn't have to deal with that. He dismissed the crowds. Last week we saw he comes walking out on the water as the disciples are in the middle of this storm, and... They worship him as God when he gets into the boat and everything is calm. This is directly after that. Okay? And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gesenaret. So they'd been across the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, come back after the feeding of the 5,000, and now they're in the area there to the, uh, would be the northwest area of the Sea of Galilee, close to Capernaum, in an area called Gesenaret. Okay, there was a town that they called Gesenaret, but it was more of an area. And the town was about three miles southwest of Capernaum. And I want to, I want to point something out here important. The wording seems to imply that they landed, they came to land as we start this passage. And Mark 6.53 confirms that. When they had crossed over, coming back across from Bethsaida after the storm, they came to land at Gesenaret and moored at the shore. So we left them there in the boat with everything calm, and it says they arrived, and where they arrive is Gesenaret. Okay? Uh, now, why is this important? Why would this be included in the account? Well, it, it would seem like it's an unimportant detail, but I think it becomes very important as the narrative continues. Jesus doesn't do anything by accident. They didn't just so happen to land at Gesenaret. There's a plan. There's a sovereign God in control of all this. Why Gesenaret? Well, God wanted to do some work in Gesenaret for, for a very important reason. Verse 35. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick. Now, being in that area on the upper side of the Sea of Galilee, there was a lot of people, probably most people, who would have recognized Jesus. Hey, there's Jesus. Why would they recognize him? He had spent a lot of time. So really we're kind of at the end of his second year of public ministry. He was incredibly well known. He had healed a lot of people. He had taught openly and publicly. Again, he's just coming out of this feeding of the 25,000 people. And so people knew him. And this is what I want you to see and what, what I want you to hear as far as them landing at, at Gesenaret. Those closest to him... Those who had been around him for these last two years, who had kind of been in the eye of the storm of his ministries in places like Capernaum, uh, Gesenaret, Chorazin, Bethsaida, they would be very familiar with him, what he had taught, and what he had done by now. 
he, he had achieved what we would call basically a celebrity level. Okay? Nothing that would make you look at Jesus and say, oh man, that guy's special, right? Isaiah said nothing that would make us look at him and say, oh, he's a good looking guy. But what he had done was very well known. And it had spread all throughout regions beyond them, down into Jerusalem. And again, you're talk, we'll talk about it in a second. You're about 80 miles north of Jerusalem. So this isn't in the, the, uh, the religious central area of the nation of Israel. But up here where he had spent these two years, he was very well known. They recognized him. And when they saw him, when, they, when he got off the boat, they knew who he was instantly. And when they saw him, like usual, crowds started gathering around him. So when he lands at Gesenera, the men of that place recognize him. Now, how do they react? This is why I think it's important that he landed at Gesenera. They don't just rush him, ask him for his autograph or a lock of his hair or something like that. Maybe have him do some special trick for him. But instead, because they were aware of who he was and what he did, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick. Now think about that for a second. There's Jesus. What should we do? Let's go find sick people. Why? Because he heals sick people. We've seen it. John MacArthur, and I'll mention John MacArthur two or three times this morning. John MacArthur says that Jesus basically banished disease from Palestine at that time. If there was anybody sick that he came into contact with, he healed them. And these people knew that. They were aware of him. They were familiar with him. They'd been around him. They'd heard him. They'd seen him. And they knew what they needed to do. And they go out and they find all those who were sick. These people who are familiar with Jesus and his work are reaching out, trying to find people that could be helped or healed by Jesus. They knew that this was his way, his pattern, his ministry. He had a consistent history of healing people. So these men who knew him, who were aware of what he was about, they got to work bringing people to him. Now there's an analogy there, right? I would love to have heard and seen this commotion. After getting thrown around all night by a vicious storm, the disciples' boat just happens to land at Gesenaret, and the word gets out and people are saying, Oh, hey, there's Jesus. Go find that crippled guy we saw yesterday. Jesus can heal him. Or somebody might have said, Oh, I can go get my mom. She's been sick for so long. And as the word spreads, Here come all these sick people. And people are bringing them to Jesus. And watch what they do. This is phenomenal. Verse 36. And implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Here come all these sick people. And what are they doing? They look like a zombie mob. Are they sitting and waiting for him to come over and touch them or to pray over him? No, get this. They implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Now, now what's going on here? We covered some of this when we looked at Matthew 9, uh, verses 18 through 26, which covered the lady who had the issue of blood. And what she did, she kept saying to herself that if she could only touch the hem of his garment, she would be healed. So we covered some of this then, but it bears repeating. What's up with this fringe of his garment thing? Why is that a thing? Let's go back to the Old Testament, Numbers 15. 
God says this in giving the law to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So God had commanded his people way back when he gave the law to put tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and they were to serve as reminders of knowing and doing the Lord's commandments. So every time they saw that tassel, it was a reminder, the law of God and the God of the law. A visual reminder to know and keep God's law. Now these knots, these tassels on the edge or the edges of their garments came to take on a prophetic meaning when Malachi said in Malachi 4.2, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Remember we were talking about calves when we went through Malachi and leaving. But you shall... Here, I'm sorry, here the Son of Righteousness came to be associated with the Messiah. So the Messiah who shall rise with what? Healing in His wings. Well, that word wings is a Hebrew word that means wing, extremity, edge, border, corner, or the corner of a skirt or a garment. So these wings that had healing in them could also mean or literally be translated as skirts or corners of a garment. Well, look at what these sick people in Gesenaret are saying and doing. They were wanting to touch the fringe of his garment. They wanted to touch his tassels. They wanted to touch the extremity of his garment. And in wanting to touch it, they believed that there was healing in his garment, in his tassels, his wings, so to speak. And their belief in, the, in this healing power flowing from these tassels, which was really flowing from the man out through the tassels, was a proclamation of their belief that Jesus was their Messiah. It was a proclamation, I believe this man is the Messiah, and since he is the Messiah, since he is the Son of Righteousness who is coming, there's healing in his wings, in his tassels. They implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. They were healed. Their Messiah had delivered them from their physical maladies with the healing that was in His wings, just like the Scripture had said would happen. They knew what He was capable of. They were familiar with Him there in that area. They dealt with Him a lot. They'd seen Him a lot. They knew the Scriptures. And they knew that He matched what the Scriptures said about the Messiah. And they implored Him, begged Him, just please, let us exercise our faith. Let us touch the hem of your garment, the tassels on the edges of your garment, because the Scripture tells us that when the Messiah comes, healing will flow through those tassels. They knew that He would do what only He could do as their Messiah. So as they reach out, as they implore Him, as they touch these tassels, this proclamation of faith makes them well. They knew Him. And it's really pretty staggering. And this is the great faith that saw Jesus for who he really was. 
And those up there in that northern area of the Sea of Galilee, they saw him. And I'm not saying they all knew him and, and proclaimed him as Messiah. But this proclamation here is this guy is him. And w- since this is him, he can do what only he can do. And we want to touch the hem of his garment because we believe he can make us well. Sadly, though, that proclamation, that understanding wasn't shared by everybody in Israel. 15.1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, this is kind of the dum-dum-dum moment we come across every time we see Pharisees and scribes mentioned. They are the antagonists here. In this narrative, they're the bad guys. They are juxtaposed directly against Jesus. They are the enemies in this story. So Matthew, after showing the faith of the sick and the feeble, they're in the northern part in Galilee, turns to the enemies of the Christ to show how they are reacting to Jesus. If it's a quick look over our shoulders here, remember that we said the segment of Matthew from the end of chapter 13 to the middle of chapter 16 is there to illustrate what the parables had told us, what Jesus had told us in the parables in Matthew 13. Those kingdom parables in Matthew 13 are illustrated here between 13 and 16. And what he said in those parables was the kingdom of heaven would indeed operate in the midst of a hostile environment with some believing and some opposing. You had four different soils, right? And only one soil produced fruit. Well, we saw the Nazarenes, Jesus' hometown folk, right directly after that, they rejected Jesus. Then we saw him feed the crowd and them show superficial faith in the ability of Jesus to feed them. And they want to make him king just because they like what he can do to fill their bellies. We saw the disciples worship Jesus in recognition of who he really was. And we saw the sick at Gennesaret exhibit faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And now we see the Pharisees and scribes. What kind of soil do you think they are? They are hard, packed, path-type soil. They don't believe and they won't believe. The seed that Jesus is throwing out lands on top of their path and the enemy comes and eats it, removes it. It doesn't take root at all in their hearts. Jesus has already passed judgment on their unbelief. He's already condemned them and said that they won't be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. And note that they come to Jesus from Jerusalem. Now keep in mind, most of Jesus' public ministry has been done up north around the Sea of Galilee, raised in Nazareth, teaching and serving in and around Capernaum. And Jerusalem, like we said, was down south, almost 80 miles from Capernaum. Jesus had been there for feasts, for sure. We saw him there as early as when he was 12 in the Scripture, and he got left there by accident. But Jesus was not from Jerusalem. You ever been somewhere where they made it obvious to you, you're not from here? You ain't from around here, are you? Or you move somewhere and the people just let you know you're really not one of us. You're an outsider. I talked to a friend of mine who moved up north in West Virginia and he said it was the most pronounced thing he had ever seen. They let you know you're not from here. And they remind you of it all the time. Well, you're not really from here though. That's kind of what was going on with Jesus in Jerusalem. He was not from there. He wasn't one of them. And the scribes and the Pharisees had this Jerusalem elite attitude about themselves and about Jesus. 
And they made it obvious that he was not one of them. Of course, Jesus made it obvious to them, I'm not one of you and you're not one of mine either. And they made it visible, the Pharisees did, by their visible opposition to him. And that's exactly what we see here. Now, now um, think about this. Set in contrast to the faith of the people at Gennesaret, who knew him and who knew what he was possible of, these scribes and Pharisees come to Jesus from Jerusalem. Now, they didn't have public transit. They didn't have a vehicle they could hop in or a bus they could jump on. They walked 80 miles up north so that they could confront Jesus because they hated him. And they come to him from Jerusalem. And what do they say to him? Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, in response to all that Jesus had said and done and taught and shown over these past two years, this is what you want to talk about? Washing your hands? What is this, 2020? I mean, only reference today, I promise. They start their conversation by referring first to what? The tradition of the elders. Now, what's that mean? Okay, we've already mentioned the law that God had given back when we were talking about tassels. That's pretty clear and easy, right? First five books of the Bible, the law, and then you got the prophets and the writings, which is the Old Testament that we, that we still have today. God gave that to the Israelites. That was their scriptures. But instead of the Pharisees and scribes seeking to live by, a law in a, in the, by the law in a straightforward way, they had developed over the course of many years their own preferences, their own way, their own tradition. And note that they call it the tradition of the elders. Those who had come before them and interpreted the law and made things that they said as important, if not more important, than God's law. John MacArthur points out that the elders had a three-pronged goal after God gave the law and it was passed to them after the time of Moses. MacArthur says this, one, three points, remember, with the law. One, be deliberate in judgment. In other words, properly apply God's law. That was one of the goals of the elders in in bringing and knowing and teaching the law of God. Second, two, raise up as many disciples so that in the next generation there would be others to apply the law. We're all right right there. Okay, to this point we're all right. But, But And three, and here's the key, MacArthur says, build a fence around the law. Wall it in so you would be protecting it. Don't let it suffer attack Wall it in. End of quote. So one, apply it properly. Two, raise up others to apply it. And third, protect the law. They saw themselves as protectors of the law. So how did they decide to protect it? Well, since their hearts basically were not right, and so many people's hearts weren't right, and the obedience was not spontaneous from the heart, the only other way to get people to do things is to make them do it. And make them do it your way, in a way that you can look at and see, yes, you are, or no, you're not. If they're not going to do it willingly, then you have to force them to do it. And so they started adding laws and laws and laws and laws. And they then became the spiritual enforcers of those laws. And down through history... The slats in the fence kept going up and there were more and more and more and more and more and more and more. And And the ultimate test was it totally obscured the law of God. 
That was the ultimate result, not the test. The ultimate result was it totally obscured the law of God. All that the people saw was the fence. They couldn't see the law. The tradition of the elders, I like what MacArthur said, can best be described as this fence. And it's this fence, this tradition, that the Pharisees and scribes are so adamant to protect and to proliferate. So they send their delegation from Jerusalem to confront Jesus about this lack of reverence for their tradition. They don't want to talk to him about healing. They've already crashed and burned there after saying he healed in the power of the devil. So they get their heads together down in Jerusalem. They say, hey, you know what? I have never seen this guy or his guys wash their hands when they eat. You know what? You're right. Neither have I. Let's go get him. So they go 80 miles up north to talk about Jesus and his disciples not washing their hands before they eat. And what are they talking about exactly? Well, it had become a tradition that in order to be, quote, clean, you had to wash your hands. You were bound to have come in contact with a Gentile, of course, so that would make you unclean. So you had to wash the dirt of the Gentiles away. But then there was this too, again, from MacArthur, quote. Now, you're not going to believe this. I didn't believe it. Quote, the rabbis taught that there was a demon by the name of Shibtah, S-H-I-B-T-A-H. And Shibtah dwelt on people's hands while they slept. And if they did not go through the ceremonial washings that eliminated him, they would pass him therefore to their food and into their bodies. Now this became so important to them that Rabbi Tanath taught, quoting, Whosoever has his abode in the land of Israel and eats his common food with rinsed hands may rest assured that he shall obtain eternal life. They believed that you received eternal life by going through the ceremonial rinsing of your hands. End of quote. Now you can't make this stuff up. I mean, they did, but, but, but I mean, you can't make this up. Now, of course, this is nowhere in the law of God. God never said this. This is the tradition of the elders. And it came to hold at least, at least an equal place with God's word or maybe even a place above God's word. We see this in Roman Catholic tradition. They have their capital T traditions which are on par even with what the Bible says. They're just as important, just as authoritative as what the Bible says. But this is what I would like to say to us this morning. If you're like me, you probably grew up with a few of these too. Things that everybody in the church knows to be true, but they can't tell you any Bible to back it up. No food in the sanctuary. Why? Because. Oh, okay. Uh, No dancing. Footloose fixed that for me, right? No drums. And we could go on and on and on. I'm not going to pick on anybody. But people are passionate about these things. And there is a holy fervor, a holy zeal. You can't do that. Or you've got to do this. And you say, well, where does it... Show me that in the scripture. Well, it's not in there, but it it implies it. Or I know that's what God would say if he said anything about it. You're going... 
And here, these Pharisees and scribes want to talk about Jesus and his men not keeping something that they are passionate about. Something they knew the people would understand and that the people would want to know too. Why don't you wash your hands? They're trying to trap Jesus in his words and his defense. And how do you figure that's going to go for him? He answered them. Boy, does he. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus comes fastball first. High heat. He answers them and addresses them head on. Their faith and their concern is for their tradition. And their tradition is leading them to break God's direct commandments. Now this is pretty important it would seem, right? And he gives them a direct example. Not about hand washing, which he didn't give two hoots about. But rather about something much more weighty and important. Look at verses 4 through 6. For God commanded... Now note that, for God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Woo! Mental note, don't bring the weak stuff to Jesus. He's going to blow it up in your face. And that's what he does here. He takes their ridiculous accusation based on their meaningless made-up tradition and points out a much bigger flaw in their lives directly from what God has said and commanded. God clearly said to honor your father and mother to the point that if anyone reviles father or mother, they must surely die. Those are quotes from Exodus 20.12 and 21.17 respectively. And then he contrasts God's word with their tradition when he says, But you... You say what you would have gained from me is given to God. When you say that, and then you say you need not honor your father or your mother if what you have gained, what, would, what they would have gained from you is given to God. Now let me explain that a little bit. What he's referring to here is a practice among the Jews that if they pronounced that something was given to or consecrated for God, it could not be violated by any means by giving it to somebody else. So what do you think a lot of Jews were doing with their stuff? This is given to God. And they didn't give it to God. They put it in their pocket or kept it at their house or in their bank account. But they pronounced it's given to God. So then when their parents got older and they needed to help their parents with that money, they're like, well, I can't because I gave that money to God. Even though it wasn't given to God. It just had a proclamation made over it, given to God. I'm going to honor God with this wealth. Well, then you can help your parents. Oh, no, no, I can't do that. This is God's money. Well, God said to honor your father. Yeah, but this is, I made the proclamation over it. Therefore, I can't give it to them. I can't help them. This is just God's money. Well, what are you going to do with it? Well, I don't know. I'll pray about it. I'll think about it and see if I can find somebody to help mom and dad. But I can't because I gave my stuff to God. And so they're giving stuff to God was just a matter of words. But that was their tradition. And their tradition taught, well, okay, fine. If that's given to God, you're right, you can't help your mom and dad with it. That sounds ludicrous. It sounds crazy. But that's exactly what they were teaching. And the Pharisees and the scribes were not only in agreement with this, they promoted it. 
They wrote it down. They codified it so that they could refer back to, well, yeah, Rabbi so-and-so said this and it's written down. So, yeah, they're good. And people are going, but but the Bible, but but what God said. Yeah, I know what God said. And this tradition is, is, is as important, if not more important, than what God said. They made sure, these Pharisees and scribes did, they made sure that they adhered to it. They, they wanted to maintain the fence. They wanted to make sure that they were the keepers of the Word of God and they kept the Word of God by their tradition. And Jesus says here that in doing so, they were making void the Word of God. That means they had invalidated the Word of God, making it have no authority in their lives. They submitted themselves, rather, to their own traditions. And those traditions, those teachings of men, that fence that they had built had become their God. They would become their own God, really. And their worship was focused on the fence and not on the word that was supposed to be protected behind it. And how does Jesus feel about this, you think? 7 through 9. Our last passage as we finish. You hypocrites... Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Gut punch. What a terrible indictment from the Son of God himself to these self-inflated religious zealots. He rightly calls them hypocrites, which means that they're like play actors, they're pretenders. Then he says that Isaiah was talking about them when Isaiah had said 700 plus years prior, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is a quote from Isaiah 29, 13. And it's a clear verdict that the religion of the Pharisees and the scribes was not true worship. It was not genuine faith. Jesus didn't have to call an expert. He was the expert, and he saw that their faith was phony. It is vain worship, external play acting, that they propagate for their own pride and pleasure, while their heart, their real thoughts and emotions are far from God. Jesus is ultimately saying that this effort by the Pharisees to condemn him really just shows their true intentions and their true standing before God, which is far from him, and in direct conflict with what God is doing in and through the life of Jesus. And we kind of stand back and we clap and we say, Yay, Jesus, you get those Pharisees. But let's be careful. Lest we too find ourselves on the wrong side of Jesus' proclamation of woe. What would Jesus say about your faith? Genuine or fake? I'm not here to scare you. But I am calling you to self-examination in light of what Jesus says. So that brings us to application. Application to look at and to make sure our worship, our faith is true and God-honoring. We've got three F's. False, faithful, and familiar. False, faithful, and familiar. First, false. Well, the first application point is... We remember it by the word false. We see clearly in the Pharisees and scribes what false worship looks like. 
And I think it's important to evaluate and see if any of what we are doing personally or corporately falls into that false worship classification. They had an emphasis on what they determined to be right and wrong. What they thought was best and most observably righteous. What they determined the scripture meant to them. Avoid the question, what does this scripture mean to me? It doesn't matter what it means to you. What does the scripture mean for me is a better question. I think it's awfully telling that Jesus does not waste one millisecond defending himself about why he and his disciples didn't participate in the ceremonial washings that the Pharisees brought up. Jesus wasn't afraid of washing the demon off his hand. He didn't do what they mentioned because it wasn't prescribed by God anywhere in his word. God had made clear that some washings were necessary, and those were clear. When to wash, what to wash, who was to wash. But that's never mentioned in what they're bringing up today. So it was false worship. Now what about us? Have any of our stances or superstitions superseded the word of God and become more important to us than what God has said? Paul addresses this in his letter to the Colossians who had resorted to strict rules about what they could and could not do. Colossians 2, 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perishes they're used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." Why do you make a bunch of rules of what you can and can't do? Those rules have no power to help you. The whole point of the law in the Old Testament was to show our complete inability to keep it. So why, do you, why are you submitting to rules now? Because they can't help you. They can't help you against the indulgence of the flesh. So these people were going to a strict legalistic can do this, can't do this, have to do this. Of course, there's another way to swing that pendulum, right? The other side of the pendulum says we can do whatever you want to do. Because it doesn't matter because you're saved. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! So there's a law, there's a rule, right? Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. There's a law, there's a rule, right? Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So the Colossians are saying, we won't do anything we shouldn't do, we'll do everything we're supposed to do, and that's going to make us holy. The Corinthians were saying, we can do whatever we want to do, because we're holy. And Paul shoots them both down. 
Your rules aren't going to save you. And your freedom over here is not to be flaunted and, 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 and taken to God and saying, God, I thank you that I can do anything I want. Both are wrong. And they're extremes that we all fall into. And we run the risk of being very pharisaical either in our rules or in our freedom. It is our faith in Christ that saves us. It is His sacrifice through His body and His blood that washes our sins away. It's by the power of His Holy Spirit that we can do better. Not by trying harder. Not by keeping rules or by flaunting our freedom. Keeping rules and flaunting our freedom are both false worship. If you live in either camp or swing back and forth from one to the other, which is my tendency, you're relying on something besides Jesus. And that's false worship. It's false faith. But I'm a good person. Really? I beg to differ. I'm not a good person. But God, but Jesus, but the Holy Spirit, because of who He is and what He's done, which is our next application point. Faithful. Jesus kept the law of God perfectly, down to the tassels on His shawl. But He didn't get lost in minutia, making major deals out of little things, nor misinterpreting the law to say what it didn't say. And this is a major trap for us, especially living in our day and age when the law has been fulfilled for us and we're recipients of grace not based on anything we've done or accomplished. But just because we don't have specific laws to keep doesn't mean that we aren't called to be faithful and live a life of faith in who God is and what He desires from us. We too cannot major in minor things nor get so focused on rule keeping that we miss that grace that has been given to us. So how do we do that? How do we show ourselves to be faithful? This is an interesting. This is where things really kind of got interesting for me in this turn here. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. There's that word. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now watch this. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul draws a straight line in this passage here in 1 Corinthians from being found faithful to having the purposes of our hearts disclosed. It is our hearts, the purposes and intents of our hearts that will lead to being commended by God. And we'll see this expanded on in the next passage when we look at Matthew 15, 10 through 20. But we need to see it here too. Listen to me. A faithful man has his heart in tune with God's heart, desiring what God desires. A faithful woman has her heart in tune with God's heart, desiring what God desires. 
We do not measure our success or failure by worldly exterior standards. Instead, we look at the law of God, we look at the word of God, and we test our hearts against that. Let the word disclose what's truly in your heart. And you feel it. You read something, you're like, oh, no, no. Oh, that sounds like some song. Oh, no, no. Someone needs to loop that. <laughs> We feel it. We feel that conviction or we feel that, what? Did God really say that? Does, does God really mean that? I'll build a wall around that so that, yeah, I'll whitewash my wall and I'll be all right. I'm not going to really address that thing that God really said. We feel those things in our hearts. Those things that we feel God taking from our clutched hand. And our heart makes us go, I'll open my hand and God, you can have it. That's what makes us faithful. Not exterior rules, not just freedom, but is my heart in line with the very heart of God? That's what it means to be faithful. And these Pharisees and these scribes surely were not. They would point to whether hands were washed at a specific time in a specific way to measure devotion to God. That's how they measured faithfulness. How do you keep all these hundreds of rules and regulations that we've laid out in these volumes of books that we've determined are important? That'll tell us if you're faithful. And Jesus says, hogwash. You're a bunch of fakers. I'm looking at your hearts. And what did he say? He said, their hearts are far from God. Where's your heart today? That determines your faithfulness. Now you don't have to be in perfect conformity to every jot and tittle, but you want to be. That's what we're after. God, convict me of my sin. God, make me hate what you hate. God, help me to love what you love. Help me to do what you would do if you were here because you know what He is. In our very midst, in our very lives, the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus says, it's better for you that I go away because if I go away, I'm going to send another, talking about the Holy Spirit, who will be not just with you, but in you. And He will make your heartbeat in synchronization with the heartbeat of God. I don't always want to do the right thing, but I always want to want to do the right thing. That's faithfulness. And we become more and more conformed to the image of Christ through our external actions only when our internal heart is in line with the Word of God. That's what it means to be faithful, not washing your hands before you eat. And just so you know, too, it, the Pharisees wanting people to wash their hands before they eat had nothing to do with germs. It was a ritual. They weren't saying, you better wash your hands so you don't contaminate people. They were just saying, you better wash your hands because Rabbi so-and-so said you need to wash your hands. It wasn't about hygiene. It was about self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is a false faith that doesn't make us faithful. Our hearts make us faithful. So false, faithful, and finally familiar. We finish here. And the application that I would ask you here, the application question that I would ask you, are you familiar with who Jesus is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he is going to do? Are you familiar with Jesus? Now, I'm not saying, did you ask Jesus in your heart? I'm not asking, do you know who Jesus is? I'm asking, are you familiar with Jesus? 
These folks up in Gisenaret, they saw him and they knew exactly what they needed to do because they knew exactly what he would do. Bring him sick people. Bring him hurting people. He ministers to them. He serves them. These jokers from Jerusalem, they missed him by a mile. They weren't familiar with him. They just hated him. Those who knew Jesus knew that his ministry was to help people and therefore draw them to God. Those who had come from Jerusalem, who had heard of him from their self-righteous friends, saw him as a rebellious, anti-establishment troublemaker who was leading people away from God. So the question ends up being, literally, who is Jesus? In your life, in your mind, what do you know about Jesus and how does it translate into how you relate to him? We said last week that God's desire and plan is that Jesus would come to be preeminent, to have first place in everything. And that will happen. Is it happening in your life, in your experience right now? Do you know Jesus as healer, as Messiah, as friend of sinners, and as the one who is near to the brokenhearted? The world and its system is diametrically opposed to all things having to do with the true Jesus. They've tried to explain him away or recast him as a good teacher or even a man-made fable. But what about you? Are you familiar with the Jesus that we've seen in this passage today? Are you familiar with the Jesus that is portrayed in the scriptures overall? Today we saw him as compassionate. We saw him as healer. And we also saw him as judge. Those who needed healing found their peace and their rest in him. Those who opposed him found themselves exposed and condemned. How about you? How about me today? Are you familiar with Jesus? Is he a trusted friend? Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? Are you confident in who he is and what he has done, in what he is doing, and in what he will do for you? What are you doing with Jesus today? Are you familiar with him? Three pictures of him quickly as we finish. Jesus says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Acts 2.36, so there we see him as friend. Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's our friend. He is Lord and Christ. And finally, he is Savior. Romans 10, 9-13, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus is Savior. Those folks in Gethsemane saw it and they knew it. 
and they begged that they could just touch the, the fringe, the hem of his garment, so that he might heal them because he was their Messiah. These guys from Jerusalem, they never called on the name of the Lord. They never recognized Jesus for who he was. Their worship was false. They didn't see the faithful ministry of the Son of God, and therefore they never called on his name. And the question we have to answer today is, have you? Will you, or will you build a fence around what God has said and try to maintain your own form of righteousness? If you do that, one day you'll stand before God and He will be your judge and He will say, depart from me, I never knew you. But if you place your faith in the Son of God, in Jesus Christ, our friend, our Lord, and our Savior, He will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not because of what you've done, but because of who Christ is in you and what he has done through you. Place your faith in the familiar work of Jesus Christ. And be familiar with who he is today in your life for your good, for his glory, and for the sake of a lost and dying world. These are crazy times. Who ever thought we'd be standing here facing what we're facing? And maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's terrible. Maybe it's the very judgment of God. I don't know. But I know who God is in the midst of it. Place your faith in Him. Be familiar with Him and help other people be familiar with Him with a genuine faith in the faithful friend, Lord, and Savior who is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, you have done great things. And you continue to do great things. And you will continue to do great things. And our faith is in you. Not in a government. Not in a vaccination. Not in our own efforts to be righteous in and of ourselves. Jesus, our faith is in you. Jesus, there's no one like you. All we have, all we need, all we want is you. And if there be anybody here this afternoon now who has not placed their faith solidly in the person of Christ, in the work of Christ, Holy Spirit, give life. Speak life and give the gift of faith so that they might call out to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins so that they might receive the gift of eternal life. Only you can do that, God, and we ask that you would. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for drawing us to yourself. We praise you for it and ask that you be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll just stand and receive a benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.
sensitivity to age is that, you know, if everybody builds up and you don't freak out and go away a thousand miles overboard, yeah, obviously you don't care. That was what 